This morning's scripture reading is in the book of Matthew chapter 2. So please open up your copy of God's word there. We'll start in verses 1 through 12 and then skip around a little, so follow my lead. If you're using one of the books, uh, one of the Bibles from the back, you'll find it on page 807. Matthew chapter 2. Let's unite our hearts together in God's word. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for, it is, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who, you sh who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go, and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. In verse 16, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. In verse 19 and 20, But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to, Je to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. This is God's word. Thank you, Adam. All right. Well, good morning. My name is Jonathan. For those who are a guest with us, we're welcome. We're uh, honored to have you here. We welcome you. And uh, we are in a series on the uh, Gospel of Matthew. We're walking right through uh, Scripture in one of the Gospels. We've been through one before. A few years ago, we went through the Gospel of Mark. And now we're walking our way through the Gospel of Matthew. So we're glad that you joined us for this study. Hope that you'll stick around with us as we walk through it together. Um, before we get into the text this morning, let me pray for us, and uh, then we'll see what God has for us in this passage. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we are thankful that we can sit before you this morning and we can learn, and that we have the freedom to do so. And so our hearts are in all kinds of places. Some of us are very anxious about things. Others in here are frustrated or angry about something, others are just kind of just meh about life, just things are just kind of just bland and dull, and we need a spark, we need you to encourage us, to lift us up. Others are sad or mourning the loss of a husband, a father, 
Others are, are discouraged or depressed. Some are happy, joyful. Lord, whatever the emotion is, we want you to come and open this text for us. Make it alive. Make it breathe and live in our presence so that we are changed through it and by it. So help me, um, and I pray that Jesus would be lifted up. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, a religion professor once asked his class, he said, uh, what do you think is the greatest sin of the Christian? And some joker in the back said, uh, said apathy, but who cares? Well, that's an interesting question, and I wonder, you know, people will say the old saying is that there is truth in jest, and I think there's some element of truth there. So in that, you know, apathy is a serious sin, especially if it's apathy toward God. What do you think? Is he right about that? Is that the greatest sin? In his book, uh, The Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis portrays the subtleties and the temptations of Satan and how he works and his techniques to draw people away from God. And at one point in his book, he makes the case that the devil's main objective is not to make people wicked, but it's to make them indifferent. And it's a very fascinating uh, piece that he has on this. And so the devil tells his nephew, which he calls in the book Wormwood, uh, he tells him that, that Wormwood must keep men or mankind comfortable at all costs. And if any man starts to worry about things like heaven and hell and their future, that Wormwood should distract them to make them think about their lunch plans or something else that's fun or something that they want to do so that they're not worried or troubled about eternal matters. And then the devil gives him this instruction. He says, he says I will always see to it that there are bad people but your job is to provide me with people who do not care. Well, I think we can say that the devil certainly has been successful at that tactic, right? I mean, people just don't care. It seems like the modern sort of idea today is it, it used to be, you know, truth is relative. There's, we go through different iterations of, of things, and it used to be real antagonism to God or real skepticism, or then it was like, well, all truth is, is, is fine, and it doesn't matter what you believe, and, and everybody's sort of way is, is, is okay. Now, it seems like the modern sort of idea is just whatever. I don't care. I mean, just do, you do you, I'll do me, and whatever. just doesn't matter. Just, there just seems to be an air in society that it just, nobody cares about anything, just kind of whatever about life. That's just total indifference. Let me ask you a question, though. When it comes to Jesus, is indifference really an option for us? Elie Wiesel was a Romanian-born Jew who survived the Holocaust. I don't know if some of you have read his uh, fantastic book called Night. But in that, he chronicles his uh, survival of the concentration camp in Auschwitz in, in Germany. And in one of his books, he talks about love, and he says the following. He says, the opposite of love is not hate, it's indifference. If Wiesel is correct, then being indifferent to someone is actually worse than hate, and therefore to be indifferent toward God is to show utter disrespect to God. People think that indifference to Jesus is no big deal. But in the eyes of God, indifference is just as damning as hostility toward God because in either case, it is sin toward God. And in this text, what we see is really three responses to Jesus. We see the magi who worship him. We see the chief priests and the scribes who are totally indifferent about Jesus. And then we see King Herod who is 
hostile, angry. Two of those reactions are soul damning, and one of them is saving. And I want to show you this in the passage this morning. We're all pretty familiar with this story. I mean, if you've been around any churches for uh, for your life. You've heard Christmas stories. Um, even in our American culture, we hear the Christmas story. And we're so familiar with this uh, story that it's hard kind of to see the historical and spiritual nuances here. But what I did was this week I sat down and I reread Matthew 2 like I've never read it before. Just, I wanted to read it like, man, I've never read this. Let's just act like this is a brand new story. And I sat down and I prayed for grace for God to just shed fresh light on it. And that's exactly what happened. I realized that there were contours of this passage that I had never seen before. Um, I had never examined so many different contours. And it was really good for my heart to be in this passage again. And so what I want to do this morning is follow the narrative of Matthew 2. And I want to draw out some lessons about Jesus and our worship of him. And I have eight of them, and we're going to fly through them. Number one, the first thing we see in this text about Jesus is that Jesus is the King of Kings, and he intends to be honored as such. And we see that in verse two. Verse two, it makes it very clear who this story is about. The Magi come to King Herod, and they say, where is he who has been born King of the Jews? And, And this bothers Herod. And you can see why this bothers Herod, because this group of men come to Herod and they ask him, where's the king of the Jews? Which is incredibly offensive to Herod because the Roman Senate had called him king of the Jews for 40 years. Herod was known as king of the Jews. So when you go to Herod and ask him, where's the king of the Jews? That's, that's kind of offensive to him. No one, but here's the difference, is that no one ever called Herod the Messiah, But here, in verse 4, the chief priest not only identified Jesus as king of the Jews, but as the Messiah, or maybe your text says Christ, which means Messiah, which in effect would have made Herod feel like he's being one-upped here. And he feels threatened, and he feels insecure that someone greater, in fact, someone much greater, has come. And that person is, is on the edge of taking his throne So he feels very threatened by this. That word Messiah is chalked full of imagery and it is powerful. John Piper says Messiah means the long-awaited God-anointed ruler who would overcome all other rule and bring an end of history and establish the kingdom of God and never die or lose his reign. You think about all of that packed into that word Messiah. Significant language. So that's the first thing we see here is that Jesus is the King of Kings and he intends to be honored as such in our hearts, in our lives. Number two, second thing we see here is that often the people you most expect to worship Jesus don't and the people you least expect to worship Jesus do. I don't know if you've seen that in your life, but I certainly have seen that illustrated time and time again. And we see it right here, verses one through three. Notice that it's not the Jews who are worshiping Jesus, but it's these magi who are coming from the east. The point is that Jesus will be worshiped by not just his ethnic people, but by all the nations of the world. And what an incredible thing to see these magi coming from the east from, you know, we sing that song, that Christmas song, We Three Kings of Orient Are coming from the east, coming from, from, from a faraway place to worship a Jesus that they're not even ethically connected to whatsoever. Who are these magi? 
Well, there's a couple of prominent views out there about this. Uh, the first view says that these men were interested in dreams. They were like magicians. They were astrologers. They were in- interested in magic. Um, and, and so what this view argues that these men came to Herod. They were spurred on by some sort of astrological um, calculations. They were looking at the stars. They were into like signs and zodiacs and all this stuff. And, and, and they do some calculations and they find out that the king... This some king had been born, and so they come to Herod and they ask, where is he? Where was he born? That's one view. The other view, which dates back further, all the way to Tertullian, is that the Magi are these men who worshipped Christ were themselves kings. They were great men, very prominent men from other places. Now, Matthew 2 does not tell us. It doesn't tell us whether they're kings or whether they're astrologers or magicians or whatever. But I do think that there is some biblical reason to think that maybe these men were kings themselves. And I'll tell you why. In the book of Psalms, we read about uh, kings bringing gifts to the Lord. So Psalm 68, 29 says, Because of your temple at Jerusalem, kings shall bear gifts to you. Then later in the Psalms, we have this prayer. May the kings of Tarshish, Psalm 72, 10, May the kings of Tarshish and the coastlands render him tribute May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. It was an interesting language. So I believe that it's actually very reasonable to see the prophecy of Psalm 68 fulfilled and the prayer of Psalm 72 in the story of these wise men who worshiped Jesus and they opened their treasures before Jesus and gave him gifts. But at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter whether these guys are kings or whether they're astrologers or magicians, but what's important and what I want you to see is that the people that you most expect to worship Jesus don't, and the people you least expect to worship him do. And that's a great lesson for us because it gives us great hope, uh, particularly when we think about people that we would consider to be a long way from God from a human perspective. Now, you just have to appreciate the contrast that Matthew is setting up here. Uh, Herod wants to kill Jesus. And, but these Gentile pagan magi, wise men, want to worship him. And this forms what, what we will see in the rest of the gospel, that time and time again, the people who should have been most enthusiastic about receiving Jesus were the ones who rejected him. And the ones that we all thought would reject him are the ones that come flocking to him. It, it's just wild. The most unlikely people come to Jesus. That, that makes me happy. That makes me excited to think about that this morning. So I'm sure you all are thinking of people that you love, that you love dearly, that are far from God. And I just want to encourage you for a moment. Maybe it's your children, your husband, your wife. Maybe it's your uncle. Maybe it's your mom and dad. I mean, you know people. And John Bunyan has this uh, amazing piece on, uh, on, on Isaiah when he's preaching a sermon. And this text in Isaiah where the Lord says, is my hand too short that it cannot save? Is my ear too heavy that it cannot hear? And Bunyan says this, he says, some of you think that you're beyond the reach of his mercy. And I will not ask you how you came into this condition. But he says this, but I say to you, and I pray that you hear me, God says, is my hand too short that it cannot save? Is my ear too heavy that it cannot hear? Oh, the length, listen to, listen to Bunyan. Oh, the length of the saving arms of God. If you are alive and you are within the reach of his arm, do not now go about and measure arms with God as some men are apt to do. I mean, do not conclude that because you can't reach God by your short stump, therefore that he cannot reach you with his long arm. 
Look again. You do not have an arm like God. It is foolish for you to think that because God is not within the reach of your arm, that his arm is not within the reach of you. For it is a long arm and no one knows how long. This should encourage us, Bunyan says, to hope and pray for the salvation of anyone, that God would reach out his arm and that we would say, awake, O arm of the Lord, and be stretched out as far as to where my poor husband is, where my poor child is, or where my poor backslidden wife or dear friends are, and lay hold of them, fast hold of them, Lord. They are gone from you, but you, O hope of Israel, fetch them and let them stand before you. Isn't that great? That's an encouragement to us as we think about our friends who do not know Jesus. Let us always remember that no one is beyond the reach of God's arm. The third thing that we see in this text is that God uses the scriptures to make his son known and worshiped. We see this in verses four through six. This is the great design of God. The great design of God is to magnify his son, to lift him up for all people to praise and herald and love. And and it is through the scriptures that we come to know Jesus. Think about it. How did Herod and the Magi come to know where Jesus would be born, right? So the Magi come and they say, Herod, where's he gonna be born? Herod says, I don't have a clue. So let me go grab some chief priests and scribes. We'll ask them because they're experts in the law. And and so the scribes were experts in the law. They taught Torah. The priests were the theological liberals of the day. They didn't really believe in largely anything, including the resurrection and all sorts of things. But they gather together and they have some sort of a, a consultation and they come back and they quote before Herod Micah, the prophecy Micah 5, 2, which says, and you, Bethlehem, out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people. So they say it's out of Bethlehem. So apparently, presumably, Herod and Magi, Jesus is going to be born in Bethlehem. So apparently, that's where he's at right now. And that's how this happens. Now, what this tells us is, is, is where the Messiah would come from. But let me ask this question. Herod doesn't say, who is the Messiah? Herod says, where does he come from? But what if Herod would have asked, who is the Messiah? Well, they could have quoted other verses in Micah 5, for example. Micah 5, 2, his origin is from, uh, from of old, from the days of eternity. Micah 5, 6, his greatness will extend to the ends of the earth. Micah says, what Micah is saying in his prophecy is that the baby, this little baby in Bethlehem is from the days of eternity. In other words, he's the eternal son of God. Or as John says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So Herod is now hearing about this Jesus. The Magi are hearing about this from the scribes. Think about the irony here, who don't really give a rip about him. And the Magi are in the process of being converted or something magnificent is happening in their lives spiritually. So the scriptures make Jesus known. And that's my large point here is that the Bible is God's self-revelation. And Jesus is the final revelation of God. Jesus is the word made flesh, which means we worship a God who is with us. We call him Emmanuel. God is with us. He speaks to us. And without his self-disclosure or revelation, we're all left lost. We don't know who God is. In other words, if we want to know God, we are tied to the text. 
We are people of this book because this is the only way that we get to know God. And so, and so we, we love the word of God. We, it is through this book that we come to know God. And, I, and I'm talking about, here's the thing, I'm talking about knowing a person, right? So we're not talking about knowing facts about a person. We're talking about actually knowing Jesus, developing a relationship Think about this, with a real man who is in heaven right now, seated at the right hand of God the Father. We're talking about knowing a real man, the real God-man in heaven, and having a dynamic and vibrant and personal and real and penetrating relationship with him. This isn't about having knowing facts about Jesus. This is about stirring our hearts up and saying, oh God, I don't want to just know things about you. I don't want to just take a class in Christology. I don't want to just take a class in biblical Greek. I don't want to just take a class in hermeneutics. I don't want to just take a class in systematic theology. I want to take a class on Jesus. I want to know you. I want to study you. I want to love you. I want to be close to you. That's the issue, is knowing him. So as Hosea 6 says, let us press on to know the Lord. And so, dear friends, church, my, my encouragement to you is to come away. Come away from the routine. Come away from the mechanics of getting up every day and just going through the motions. Get alone with God. Shut your door. Know your Jesus. I mean, imagine if you had a wife or a husband and you said to them, you know, I, I, uh, I, I study you, I want to know you, and so therefore I'm going to read an academic textbook on you. And I will read it each day, and I'm not really going to talk to you or relate with you, but I'm going to study you, and I want you to feel loved and appreciated by that. You wouldn't feel loved and appreciated by that. You would feel loved and appreciated if they wanted to spend time with you. So we're talking about time with Jesus not mere facts. Now, both are important, but, but you understand what I'm saying. Spend time with Christ. The fourth thing we see here is that Jesus is troubling to people who do not worship him. We see this in verses three and four. This is not the main point of the text, but it cannot be missed, surely. I mean, look at Herod's reaction in verse three. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all of Jerusalem with him. Amazing. Not only was he troubled, but all of Jerusalem. Really? The whole, the whole thing. All of Jerusalem's troubled? I mean, you, you listen to this and you're thinking, what in the world is going on with, with, with God's people? Why are they troubled? Why are the Jews troubled that the king of the Jews has arrived? I mean, it's unbelievable. You look at this, it's just shocking which just goes to show that people who do not worship Jesus are not indifferent toward him. They're actually very troubled with him. Jesus is troubling the people that do not worship him. You think about how uncomfortable people are if they don't worship him because Jesus troubles their mind. Jesus troubles their heart. Jesus troubles their emotion. He troubles their conscience, the conscience of men and women who suppress the truth about him and their unrighteousness. And so you either love Jesus or you're bothered by Jesus. But you're not really sort of indifferent about Jesus. Like, you know, he's kind of a cool guy, but I'm not really all in with him, but I'm kind of halfway in. No, you're either, I, I'm bothered by this guy, he bothers me, I don't like him, or I love him and I want to serve him. But you see, people, and we, we all have this tendency, like to say things like this. They like to say, well, 
I, I, I like to think of Jesus as a good man. Jesus was a good man. Not only that, but he was a good teacher. He taught a lot of good morals to us. And, 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 and I think he's a really great person, but he's not God. And I don't have to submit to him. And people will say things like that because I think they want to remain indifferent. In other words, they want to show some sort of respect for him historically, but they don't want to submit to him as God. And to this, C.S. Lewis has one of the best uh, responses to this I've ever heard. He says this, C.S. Lewis says, I'm trying to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. Namely, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. Lewis says, that is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. But you make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else he's a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any of this patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that option open to us, and he did not intend to. That's a great phrase from Lewis. And that's why I entitled this sermon, Crown Him or Crucify Him, Indifference is Not an Option. You don't get to sort of play a middle ground with Jesus. You're either all in or you're all out with Jesus. You see, there are two kinds of people in this story that don't worship Jesus, right? The first kind of people that don't worship Jesus are people that simply do nothing about it. This is the chief priest and the scribes. Notice what they do in verse four. They tell Herod where Jesus can be found and that's it. They don't care. They simply report the facts and then they move on. They had knowledge of God, but they did not have grace in their heart. They had a good head, but a bad heart. And that is what we would call indifference. But what I'm arguing this morning is that that indifference is actually hostility to God. Being indifferent toward God is being all out. You're either all in or you're all out. And if you're indifferent, you're all out. You're saying, I'm just not in. I'm just not in with you, Jesus. That's the first kind. The second kind of people who do not worship Jesus are people like Herod, people that are threatened by Jesus. His, Herod has got to be one of the most narcissistic people in the New Testament. In fact, uh, one, one uh, I think it was Josephus, quotes a guy who says that it was safer to be one of Herod's pigs than one of Herod's sons because Herod's sons knew that even though they had a rightful heir to the throne, that Herod would kill him if they tried to get it. Herod was a maniac. Herod was a crazy man. Herod was clinically probably extremely narcissistic. And, and, here, and here's the thing with, with this guy is that he's very paranoid. And that's why he lies and he tells to the Magi and he tells them to commit mass murder. He tells his, 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 his kingdom, his, his, uh, whatever the folks are in his kingdom to commit mass murder. They slaughter every boy of two years of age and under because he's trying to get rid of Jesus. Herod is obsessed with his throne. He's jealous. So that's what we see. We see, we see that people, Jesus troubles people that don't worship him. The fifth thing we see is that worshiping Jesus means joyfully recognizing his authority and worth and sacrificing our lives for his sake. We see this verse two, verses 10 and 11. 
I mean, I, uh, this is amazing. I think there's four aspects of worship. I mean, if we're just going to talk about sort of like a sermon on worship, this is a great text to do so. You see four really clear uh, uh, sort of examples of what biblical worship is. The first is a recognition of his authority, of Jesus' authority. Look at verse 2. The wise men recognize his lordship by calling him king of the Jews. They recognize his authority. They believe in Christ even though they have never seen him. Think about this. There was no miracles to convince them. There was no teaching to persuade them. They saw nothing but a little baby in Mary's arms, and they worshiped him as king. You remember when Jesus says, let the little children come to me? He says, be like a child in the kingdom. The magi are like that. They don't have anything to, to go on to say, you know, we believe that Jesus is the king. They don't have any evidence of that. But something's going on in their heart, and like little children, they worship a baby in a mother's arms, and that's the kind of faith Jesus would say is great faith. So they recognize his authority. Number two, they recognize his worth. And then what do they do? They fall down and they worship him. Verse 11 we read, and going into the house, by the way, this is probably two years or close to two years after Jesus has been born. So we have this idea that the magi show up and they're right there with the shepherds in the manger. That's not what's going on at all. Um, that's why Herod says two years of age and under, because this is probably a couple of years out by the time they actually make it. And at this point, Mary and Joseph are in a house. And going into the house, verse 11, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and they worshiped him. Now, here's the thing. Don't you think it's a little awkward for a grown man to worship a baby? Let's be honest. Don't you think it's a little weird for a rich man to worship a poor child? Don't you think it's a little odd for a Persian man to worship a Jewish boy? Yeah, that's awkward. Of course it's awkward. But here's the great point is that when you see Jesus and you recognize who he is, none of that stuff matters. Isn't that your story? When you were first saved, weren't you, sort, weren't you crazy for Jesus? You didn't really care what people thought about you. You didn't really care how goofy it looked to worship him. You didn't really care how how it was perceived by your friends, how you worship Jesus. You didn't care anything about that because you knew he was the king of kings and you were gonna give your life to him and worship him. And I just wanna plead with you, dear people, that that's how you should still feel about Jesus. Who cares what people think? This is not the, this is not the profession you know, to be in if you care about how people think. This is not the, the lifestyle to lead if you care about how people think. Jesus said you're going to be mocked. Jesus says you're going to be scorned. Jesus says you're going to be ridiculed. So let's go on and do that for the sake of Jesus. And, and here's, here's the thing is that these guys don't really care. They recognize his authority. They recognize his worth. They worship him. Third thing, they rejoice in him. Verse 10, I love this. It's not enough just to recognize his worth and authority. They want to rejoice in him. They want to enjoy him. So what does it say in verse 10? We read that when they saw the star, which represents Jesus, they rejoiced exceedingly and with great joy. Which means true worship is not just ascribing authority and worth to Christ, but it's doing so with joy. This is how God made us. We can't help but praise the thing that we most enjoy. And that enjoyment is not complete unless we find a way to celebrate and rejoice in the thing that we are worshiping. Again, C.S. Lewis put it this way. He says, we delight to praise what we enjoy because 
The praise not merely expresses, but completes the enjoyment. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is, is incomplete until it is expressed. Do you hear that? So there's something to do with worship and the expression of our emotion to God that completes our enjoyment of him. And that's why you are encouraged to be vocal in worship. You are encouraged while we are singing to, to say praise God. You're encouraged while we're in worship to lift your arms and to clap your hands. You're encouraged to shout Shouts of praise. You're allowed to express emotion here because we understand that your enjoyment of God is not complete until you are able to express it. So you're free to do that. I, I, I just encourage you. I would love to see us be more vocal. More vocal in singing. More vocal in preaching. It shouldn't be real silent out there. It should be loud. It should be robust. There should be interaction with a preaching, interaction with a sermon. There should be amen and yes and thank you, God. There should be, you know, and so we can learn a lot from our, our, our black friends who worship this way consistently. Other countries, you know, you go to Africa, you go to India. These folks are interactive. And if you feel interactive inside, but you're holding it back for some reason, don't do that. Let it out. Celebrate the God that we worship. And I'm just telling you as a pastor, you are free, free, free to do that. In fact, encouraged. The fourth aspect that we see in this text of worship and the last aspect of worship is this, an act of sacrifice. Look at verse 11. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And by giving these costly things, what if the Magi, you know what they're saying? They're saying that Jesus, you are my treasure, not these things. Not this gold, not this frankincense, not this myrrh. You are the treasure. And when we worship Jesus, we're saying to him, Lord, we did not come here this morning at church to get something from you primarily. We came to get you. Not something from you, but you. You are the treasure. You are what we want. And so we say with Asaph in Psalm 73, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth I desire besides you. Is that true? You know what the test of that is? The test is when you are stripped from your dearest possessions, like Jana and Jared and Patsy. And you know what I watched them do this week? I watched them say very loudly through their words that Jesus is their treasure. No, they love their daddy. They love their husband. She loved her husband. But you know what? At the end of the day, Jesus is their treasure. And that's blatantly obvious. Because you don't see Jared hardening his heart and saying, I hate God. You don't see Jana doing that. You don't see Patsy doing that. You see them say, we love you, Jesus. That's the test right there. Are we willing to sacrifice and lay down even our dearest possessions for Jesus? Number six, the sixth thing we see in this text is that God sometimes uses supernatural means to protect his children. This is interesting. Verses 12, 13, and 19, we see this, these dreams, all right? Back up to verse 8. Herod says in verse 8, Go search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. <laughs> what a lie. Did you pick that up? What a lie. What a lie. He's not trying to worship Jesus. Herod's deceit is satanic. It's demonic. It's utterly wicked. It's subtle. It's crafty. It's very demonic. He's a liar. 
He didn't want to worship Jesus. Now, all lies are bad, and, and even little lies will plummet us into hell, but there are just some lies that are just more wicked and insidious. Like, like when Jacob stands at his, at his dad's bed, Isaac, and he says, how did you get the game so fast? And he's like, God provided it. That's sick. That's sick to invoke God's name in a lie. And that's what Herod's doing. Herod says, he says, tell me where he is because I want to worship him too. You don't want to worship Jesus. His real intent was to kill him. So the Magi, what does God do? The Magi are, were warned by God's providence in a dream that they should not return to Herod. And so we read in verse 12, and they departed to their own country by another way. Look at verse 13. And an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. God says to them in a dream, Herod's about to do something crazy. Before, here's this, this is an amazing thing about God's sovereignty. God says Herod's about to do something crazy before Herod even knows he's about to do something crazy. <laughs> Verse 13 makes it clear that God knows what Herod's gonna do before Herod knows what Herod's gonna do. Herod doesn't even have a plan yet to kill children. So it's not like Herod decides he's gonna kill children and then God says, ooh, I better fix this real fast. No, God knows before Herod even makes a decision that he's planning to kill children. But I want you to notice that little phrase in verse 12, they departed to their own country by another way. You can just read words like that and just totally just think, well, what's important about that and skip over it. But I, I would argue that those are very significant words. By another way. Because they teach us an important lesson, lesson in that a man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. We think we know where we're going, but how many times does God come in with a curveball and send us in a totally opposite direction? It happens so often. Things often turn out different than we expect. And God does this deliberately because he knows how prone we are to live by sight and not by faith. And so he'll change the course of where we're headed. I'm not sure that very rarely has anything turned out exactly the way I thought it would. Very rarely. Things almost always turn out different because God has a different plan. But here's what I know is this, is that our future will include many trials I know that God is never surprised by any of those trials. And I know that even though God's way is different than mine, I can always trust him. Always. Number seven, we learn in this passage that God always keeps his word. I'm thankful for that. So we can trust in him. He's a rock. Like we, we know that when we get up tomorrow, the universe is going to be fine because God's trustworthy. So verses 14 and 15, verse 14, Joseph rose and he took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. Here's the phrase. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. So 800 years before this, Hosea is saying something prophetically and now it's coming to pass because God keeps his word. God promised something through Hosea, and he kept that promise. And it's another reason why we can trust him. And by the way, that prophecy out of Egypt, I called my son, is very significant. It tells us three things about Christ. First, it tells us that Christ is the greater king. Herod was not born a king. In fact, he was never even fit for the title of king 
But Jesus, think about this, was born king. And he's the rightful heir to the throne of David. Jesus is the greater king to which all other kings will bow. The second thing this tells us is that Jesus is the greater Israel. Matthew understood this. He understood that Jesus was the culmination of the Old Testament. He's the last Adam. He's the true Israel. He's the suffering servant. He's the son of David. He's the faithful remnant. He's the ultimate prophet. He's the reigning king. He's the final priest. Jesus is the greater Israel. And the third thing we see is that Jesus is the greater Moses. I mean, the parallels between Moses and Jesus are amazing. Moses was under a a penalty of death, right? Kill all these, these male children, In Egypt, Jesus is under this penalty of death by Herod. Kill all these male children. And here here we have Moses delivers his people from physical bondage so they can worship God. But Jesus is the greater Moses because he delivers us from self and sin and Satan. And not just in this life, but in the life to come. And so he provides not only, he's not only a better Moses, but he provides a greater exodus out of death and out of hell and out of sin and an exodus from the wrath of God, Jesus is the real hero in this story. So this is what we see about Jesus. And then God keeps his word. And then number eight, the last thing we see in this passage um, is that God plans, God's plans, excuse me, cannot be thwarted by anyone or anything. And again, that's really comforting news for us. That, 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 that God's plans can't be thwarted. Like there's nobody here, there's no dictator on earth that can thwart God's plans. This is just so comforting. We see this in verses 16 through 23. That's the whole plot of Herod trying to kill all these children and, and eventually really trying to kill Jesus. And God's like, no way, man. No way you're gonna stop my plan. Then Herod, we read verse six, then Herod Uh, When he saw that he had been tricked, verse 16, by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under. Herod's greatest fear had become a reality. He was tricked. The word furious here, this is the only time it's used in the New Testament. And it's strengthened with the adverb, very much or exceedingly, very much or exceedingly furious, hostile, angry, I mean, and so the combination signifies fury that is almost unknown to mankind. This guy is literally out of control, out of my way. He's gonna kill everybody around him because he will kill Jesus and nobody will take my throne, Herod's saying. And he sticks his fist in God's face. He sticks his fist in God's face. He pounds his chest. He says, I'm Herod. I own all this stuff, God. You won't get in my way. I will kill Jesus. And then God, just in his own quiet way, just says, no, sir, no, sir. God's plans will not be thwarted, even by an out-of-control dictator. No wonder Revelation 12 speaks of a great dragon at war. This is depicted in Revelation 12. We have this great dragon at war, breathing fire, Revelation 12, at the woman's womb as he waits to consume the child to be born. That's picking up on this story. But God in his sovereignty protects the child in Revelation 12. And then what does the dragon do? This is what's so sobering. The dragon says, okay, if you're gonna protect the child, then I'm gonna take all my fire and fury and pour it out on God's church. On all those that worship Jesus. And that's us, friends. 
And that's sobering for us to realize that Satan hates our guts. Because you love Jesus, he hates you. And this is spiritual warfare. This is serious. And and, and into this great cosmic drama we find ourselves this morning, which means this isn't a fairy tale, friends. This is real. And we're caught up in this great drama which means we need to realize that we are not merely dealing with our own personal struggles of sin this morning, but we're caught up in a cosmic battle of principalities and powers in conflict with one another in the heavenly realm. That's why you can't get up in the morning and just sort of waltz through your day without putting on the armor of God and taking care of your heart and soul because this is a battlefield and this stuff is serious. Those who hate God hate those who love God. That's why Frederick Nietzsche, the famous atheist, once quipped sarcastically and snidely, he said, God is dead. Actually, God is alive and well. Nietzsche's dead. And he's been dead for years. And I'll remind you this morning that in Christ, we win the battle. Now, that doesn't mean the struggle is over, but it does give us fresh courage when we know how this ends. As Martin Luther said in his epic hymn, the prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall destroy him. And what do we see in verse 20? Guess who died? Herod. He's dead. He's dead. There he goes. This big, bad dictator. Big, big time guy, huh? He's dead. Just like that. It's nothing for God to bring a man down. Nothing. God's plans will not be thwarted. See, friends, people do not know the God that we worship. They do not know the Jesus, who Jesus really is, and so they reduce him to some sort of earthly, carnal Santa Claus that can be manipulated to fit their own dictates and passions and desires. Oh, I like Jesus because Jesus gives me stuff. They think that's who Jesus is in the Bible. Oh, I like Jesus because I get really good feelings when I'm with Jesus. They think that's who Jesus is, but Jesus that we see in this text is the God-man. He's high and he's lifted up. Isaiah said the train of his robe filled the temple. You must understand that every king had a train on his robe and that the longer the train was, the greater the kingdom. And when Isaiah said the train filled the temple, he is saying that your God is so glorious, so authoritative, so absolute, so sovereign, so holy, so unlimited that his train filled the temple. He is not a candidate. He is not an option. He's not a collection of gods contending for position. He is, in, he, he is eternal, immutable, incomprehensible, wonderful, everlasting Father, mighty God, Prince of Peace. He's self-sufficient. He didn't need a board or a task force to create the universe. No, God simply stepped out onto nothing and he said, I will make something. And the power of life came shooting out of his mouth. He's sovereign. God didn't need you. He doesn't need you to agree with him or to give him a thumbs up or to like his Facebook status. God doesn't need you to nod your head or clap your hands or anything else before there was a preacher or a choir or an instrument or a church or a book or a crowd. Nobody voted for God. Nobody voted him in and nobody can take him out. He's totally self-sufficient. He's invincible. 
He speaks and it comes to pass. He declares something and it's so. He's not a governor. He's not a lieutenant. He's not a mayor. He's God. And he's incomprehensible. Every attempt to fully explain him has ultimately failed. He can be known, but he cannot be fully known. He is transcendent. There are parts of God that we simply cannot access. We try to describe him, but how can you describe a God that supersedes our language and intellect? We're trying to describe something that is beyond human comprehension. And all of that is intended to cause us to break down and fall on our knees and fall at his feet and confess that you are God and you're worthy of all my worship. God is perfect. God didn't make us because he was lonely. He was complete in the enjoyment of himself. God never asked a question that he couldn't answer. God has never needed anything. There are no gaps or holes or places of need in God. Listen, he commands your worship, but he doesn't need it. And if you don't give him worship, that's your loss. It's not a loss for him. God is all powerful. He raises up whoever he wants. He brings down whomever he chooses. He said, I have power over the clay. I can exalt one and I can destroy another. In fact, I'm convinced that God loves, 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 loves to take the least likely of people and do the greatest things. He just get, you know what he does? He just gets somebody, he just gets somebody out of nowhere, nobody that you've ever heard about, that somebody that has no skills and that looks like they have nothing to offer to the job and he raises them up and does amazing things through them. A complete nobody. He gets a little boy with five loaves and two fish and he says, I'm gonna turn you into a buffet for 5,000. He takes a woman who's had a divorce, five of them, and he turns her into an evangelist. She goes into the city and praises Jesus. Sometimes God will make a fool out of the world just to say that I'm God and I'll do whatever I want. You see, you see, church, if we're gonna live with hope and faith in Christ, we have to take God at his word. We can't live on the basis of our feelings, right? We can't get up every day and sort of, sort of stick our, flick our finger and stick it up in there, see which way the wind's blowing and try to get a good beat on our feelings or how we think or hope things will turn out. We can't say, you know, things are really kind of starting to line up in my favor and I'm a little bit more encouraged these days. No, no, listen, nothing has to be working in your favor for God to step in. Nothing has to be getting better in your life. In fact, things can be getting worse and worse and worse and it doesn't matter because God can step into the wreckage at your worst point and save you out of that. You don't need things to be getting better for God to step in. That's the whole point of God being God is that he can step into the worst of situations and heal you and raise you up and redeem you. And I, and I, just, and I just implore you, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, look, and you've got some messed up places in your life and things are really dark, pray, seek God, get on your face. God can reach you in the deepest place. So God is all we need. That's Matthew 2. That, that, that's Jesus in Matthew 2. And here's what I want to say as a conclusion. The worship team can come up. Here's what I want to say in conclusion is that you can't be indifferent toward that. You can't. You either hate that or you love that. You cannot be indifferent toward that. There is only two responses to this text. Crown him or crucify him. But I'm telling you, indifference is not an option. Again, one last quote from C.S. Lewis. He put it this way, Christianity if false, if false, is of no importance. But if it's true, 
It's of infinite importance. The one thing it cannot be is moderately important. It cannot be that. The Magi worshiped him. Herod tried to kill him. My question to you is, what will you do with him? What are you doing with him? What did you come in here this morning doing with him? And what are you going to leave here today doing with him? Will you crown him? Let's pray. Father, I, I thank you for your word. We are corrected. We stand corrected. We have not worshipped you like we ought. We have not treated you as the great glorious God that you are. You know, in our hearts, Lord, we say that we crown you. And yes, we have been baptized and, and many of us are saved and trusting in you. But functionally, we're not crowning you. Functionally, we're still operating like little gods in our behavior sometimes. Lord, forgive us. And for those who have never crowned you, who have never repented of their sins, never put their faith in Jesus, will you make that happen? Will you breathe spirit, breathe life, regenerating power into them, oh God, this morning? And for our dear lost loved ones that don't know you, your long arm, reach them, oh God. Reach them, oh God. May there be one or two this morning that will be reached, Lord, I pray. Lord, that you would open up hearts right now. One, two, three in here this morning who just know that they need to get right with God. Know they need to quit playing games with this. Know that what I'm saying, what I'm preaching is right and it is true. That you would cause them right now to bow their knee. Anybody in here not be embarrassed to get on their knees. If they need to get on their knees to get down on their knees and worship him right now, we would shout praises to you. We would glorify you, O oh God. We would praise you, O oh God. We would not be ashamed of you, O oh God. But rejoice in you this morning. We hail you as the king. Not only the king of the Jews, but the king of all nations. We hail you this morning. We praise you this morning. We recognize your lordship. So dear people, as we close in this last song of worship, we're gonna, we're gonna pass this offering if you're a guest with us, we want you to just let that go by. That is not for you. This service is, is a gift to you. And we are thankful that you're here. Dear brothers and sisters, for the rest of us, let's close with God. As we leave here, as we sing, close with God. And whatever you need to confess or pray, take care of that right now with Jesus. In Jesus' name.